I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The United States government could default on its obligations by June 1st if Congress does not raise or suspend the debt ceiling. In a letter to Congress, Secretary Janet Yellen wrote, Given the current projections, it is imperative that Congress act as soon as possible to increase or suspend the debt limit in a way that provides longer-term certainty that the government will continue to make its payments. House Republicans say that they are unwilling to raise the debt limit without getting deep spending cuts. They passed the Default on America Act that would reduce the coming year's budget by at least $142 billion from the current fiscal year and cap discretionary spending increases to 1% per year for the next decade. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer used the act's acronym DOA to say that this bill is dead on arrival in the Senate. President Biden said that he is unwilling to negotiate over the full faith and credit of the United States. What is the debt limit or the debt ceiling, and why do we have one? Is it routine to have these kinds of fights over raising the debt limit? And if it is not raised, what are the likely consequences? To address these issues, I am very happy to welcome back to Econofact Chats, Bill Gale of the Brookings Institution. Bill is widely recognized as one of the country's top experts on public finances. He is the author of the book, Fiscal Therapy, Curing Americans' Debt Addiction and Investing in the Future. Bill, welcome back to Econofact Chats. Thank you very much, Michael. So let's start with some basics. What's the difference between the government debt and the government deficit? The deficit is the annual difference between spending and revenues. So if the government raises $100 in revenues and pays $170 in spending, the deficit is $70 during that year. The debt is the total cumulative deficits uh, that have arisen over time. So if it's $70 a year for 10 years, then the debt is $700. There aren't any laws in this country that prevent the deficit from breaching a certain level, but there is a debt limit for the federal government in the United States. Can you describe what the debt limit, also known as the debt ceiling, is? Sure. Uh, the debt limit, the debt ceiling puts a constraint on the total amount of debt that the government uh, can issue. It's a legal concept of debt, not an economic concept of debt, which we'll talk about. But it, what it does is limit formal debt issuance by the federal government. The limit is currently $31.4 trillion, and uh, we, are, we are at that limit uh, already. And uh, the Treasury is doing what are called extraordinary measures uh, to keep the government from defaulting. So the debt limit is for money that's already been appropriated, right? 
That's right. The debt arguments arguments about the debt limit and the debt ceiling are not are not proposals or arguments for or against new spending. Uh, it's it's an it's uh, raising the debt ceiling is necessary or suspending the debt ceiling is necessary just to pay the bills that Congress has already authorized the government to spend. Uh, it's not well understood. But the government cannot spend money unless Congress authorizes that spending. And uh, oddly enough, when Congress does authorize spending, uh, it does not at the same time authorize the government to finance that spending. So Congress can tell the government, can pass a law that says we require the government to spend $100, but we're not going to give the government any way to pay for that $100. And what they do is then raise the debt ceiling periodically so that the government can pay for each of those uh, $100 uh, uh, spending requirements. So it's a little bit like if I spent money using my credit card, but then when the bill comes due, I say, well, you know, I don't authorize myself to pay for the money that I've already spent, that I agreed to spend using my credit card. Exactly. Uh, raising the debt ceiling is, again, is an issue of paying for spending that Congress has already authorized and the government has already done, uh, but Congress hasn't given them a way to pay for that spending yet. So it's a little weird, right? I mean, it's like using the analogy of the credit card. It's like I go out and I spend money and then I say, oh, well, you know, I shouldn't have spent this money, so I'm not going to pay for it. So how did the debt ceiling come about? It's not in the Constitution. Uh, Originally, uh, way back in the 1790s, Congress had to authorize every issuance of debt uh, that the government wanted to provide. Uh, And that went on for over 100 years. And then in World War I, the debt requests from the government were so intense and frequent that Congress switched to passing an overall limit on the amount of debt the government could issue rather than rather than trying to approve each issue. So since World War I, uh, the debt limit has been raised over 100 times, uh, uh, 78 times since 1960, about once a year this century. Uh, it's a f- common occurrence. Uh, it happens under Democratic and Republican uh, administrations and Congresses. Uh, it's a major opportunity for one party to demagogue the other. Uh, but so far in our history, uh, it's always been passed or suspended uh, when when that was the needed action. Do any other countries have a similar debt ceiling or debt limit? Uh, the only country I'm aware of that has a debt limit is Denmark, but it's much, much higher than, uh, than their existing debt. It's not a political issue, and uh, uh, it's, it's simply not used the way our debt limit is used. So, Bill, you had an Econofact memo from 2019, and in that you point out the issue that there's debt that the government owes to the public and also a portion of the debt that some parts of the government owe to other parts of the government. Which of these is used in the debt limit rule? 
Well, this is, I mentioned earlier that this is a legal definition of debt, not an economic definition of debt. Uh, so one of the many strange things about the debt limit debate is that the debt limit applies to debt that one part of government owes another part of government. So, for example, what happens is if Social Security runs a surplus or Medicare runs a surplus, that raises the amount of debt that is sub, that, that the debt limit refers to. That seems ridiculous because the government's getting in more revenues than it's paying out. So how is it raising debt? Well, Social Security takes the surplus and gives it to the Treasury Department. And the Treasury Department issues a bond to Social Security. By the way, Social Security giving it to the Treasury Department is what's euphemistically known uh, as building up the trust fund. So Social Security gives the surplus to Treasury. Treasury gives a, a bond to Social Security and says, we owe you this money. And uh, uh, that bond counts as part of the legal of the debt that applies to the debt limit, even though it's just one part of government uh, paying another part of government or, or owing money to another part of government. So of the $31.4 trillion in debt, almost $7 trillion of it, that is between 20 and 25% of that debt, is simply debt that one part of government owes another part of government. So it's kind of like no one, no one if they took $10 out of their right pocket and put it in their left pocket, would say, oh, my left pocket owes my right pocket $10 now, therefore I have debt of $10. But that's how the government accounting rule works. And uh, I mean, it's at best, it's silly. At worst, you know, it's counterproductive and dangerous. And in fact, now it's counterproductive and dangerous because it's bringing us to this precipice, which we wouldn't have approached if we were looking at net debt instead of gross debt, correct? That's correct. That is, that's exactly right. So the debt limit has come up several times this year, and each time Secretary Yellen has given some provisional dates of when we would reach what's called the X date, the time when the government would start defaulting on its payments. Why do these dates change? Basically because uh, the Treasury Department predicts how much tax revenue is coming in on a on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis, and they predict how much spending is going out, and it's neither of those items are certain. With tax revenues, for example, uh, the Treasury pretty much knows how much it's getting from taxes on wages because those wages are withheld and reported, that those taxes are withheld and reported. But taxes on capital gains, for example, uh, the Treasury may not have a, a good estimate of how much capital gains they're going to be, and therefore, how much revenue is going to come in on, you know, before April 15th or this year, April 18th. Uh, but because of the uncertainty, there's guesswork uh, about when when the X day is. And you mentioned before that the Treasury undertakes what are called extraordinary measures to forestall the X day. What are some of these? Well, so it's important to emphasize that these extraordinary measures are not only legal, they're necessary to avoid default. Uh, but it's things like like uh, borrowing money from a pension fund, basically. So there's a pension fund for government workers, 
right? And uh, uh, Treasury can borrow money from that in when the when the government hits the debt limit. And so it borrows money, and then when the debt limit's raised, it pays the money back. Uh, I mean, yes, it's ridiculous that the United States government, the largest financial institution in the entire world, has to resort to stuff like that. But this is the system that we have. When I served in government in 2011, there was a furloughing of non-essential employees. And I was, I have to say, a little dismayed to learn I was non-essential. Is this something linked to the approaching debt limit or was it something else? It was something else. Uh, The government shutdowns are very different from debt defaults. The government shuts down if Congress has not passed a budget uh, because with no budget, there's no authority uh, to pay government workers and provide government services. Uh, With a debt default, uh, the government's obligations, all the obligations uh, would be subject to would be subject to default. It might be that the government does not pay bondholders. It might be that it doesn't pay Social Security recipients on time. It might not pay you know doctors in Medicare or Medicaid on time. If the government hits the X date and there's no action, then some government payments uh, will not be made and that will constitute a default, whether it's bondholders or to other people. So if that happens and I was a government bondholder, I'd be pretty worried. And the possibility of that happening would force me to require a higher interest rate in order to hold a government bond. Do you see any evidence that interest rates are rising as a consequence of this or that if it does in fact happen, do you think interest rates on government bonds would spike and end up costing the government more to be able to finance its debt? Uh, Historically, as debt limit showdowns have reached their apex, uh, interest rates have gone up uh, in 2011 and 2013, for example, and, and, and a few, a few years ago as well. Uh, if there were an actual default, uh, we don't know exactly what would happen, but we do know what happened, uh, in the late seventies, uh, where a computer error led to a temporary unintentional partial default on one tranche of government debt. I think, I think the debt got paid a week later than it was, was supposed to. Uh, and that spooked investors and ended up costing the government about $40 billion in today's dollars in terms of higher interest rates. And uh, if that's what a temporary unintentional partial default would do, uh, you can only imagine what an, an intentional uh, substantial default uh, would do, not just to government interest rates, uh, but to all financial markets, which which build off of interest rates. A lot of interest rates in the market are keyed to treasury rates. So if treasury rates go up uh, because of this default risk, uh, then other interest rates will, will go up too. So that's a pretty dire um, prediction of what would happen. And I guess that's shared by many others if you read the press about what the possible consequences would be of a failure to raise the debt limit. What else do you see happening if we hit the debt ceiling and there isn't a resolution of this problem? Uh, <laughs> I, it's hard to know. I mean, the, the 
people have estimated that it would cause a recession. Uh, it's unclear how deep because it's unclear how broad and lasting the default would be. But, you know, U.S. Treasuries are the anchor of the world financial system. Uh, so uh, pulling out that anchor can't do anything good for the U.S., uh, you know, for 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 Main Street or Wall Street or or the rest of the world. Do you think that just even if we don't have the default, if some agreement is reached, these kinds of shenanigans will um, ultimately loosen that anchor, will make the U.S. Treasury bill market not the anchor for the world as a whole, but in fact will sort of change the entire world financial system? Uh, that's a good question. Um, politicians are definitely playing with fire when they when they uh, refuse to raise the debt ceiling and and practice this brinkmanship uh, on the debt ceiling. Uh, and I I don't know you know how much latitude they have, but it it just it just seems like a bad idea given given the key role of the U.S. in in the world financial system, the key role of the financial system in the U.S. itself, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, the benefit the government gets from being able to pay low interest, low interest rates relative to all other assets. So have you found yourself storing up on can canned goods lately? Not yet. Uh, okay. Um, well, I might I might start stockpiling them in my basement. What can be done, Bill? I've heard a range of possible options. If it's, it seems all too likely, there isn't a congressional compromise. People have even spoken about the Treasury minting a trillion-dollar coin and then using it to pay its bills. I guess that'd be like a really big coin. Would that work? Uh, actually, it doesn't have to be big. It just has to have a trillion dollars stamped on it. So there's a quirk of the law that says the Treasury can print coins, can mint coins of any denomination if they're made of platinum. It was done in the night. It was enacted in the 1990s uh, with like coin collectors in mind and stuff like that. But it's a loophole uh, for purpose of the debt ceiling, but nobody wants to use it. So uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said she didn't want to use it. Uh, the Fed certainly, if, if the Treasury minted it, they would deposit it with the Fed, the Federal Reserve. And the Fed certainly wants nothing to do with this, that this is politicians' problems. They don't want to get sucked in. Um, in terms of sort of logical solutions, the obvious thing would either be to eliminate the debt ceiling, to suspend it, or simply to create the rule that if Congress authorizes spending of a certain amount, it automatically authorizes the government to raise the money uh, to pay for that spending. Uh, that would those would be real solutions. There's a there's another solution out there that uh, is tricky, uh, and that is the government apparently can it could issue uh, consuls. Consuls are infinitely lived bonds. They never come due. The government just pays interest on them every year. But since they never come due, they would actually not count toward the debt limit, according to articles I've read. I'm not a lawyer, but according to articles I've read, uh, that would work. 
So the government could issue these these infinitely like bonds like uh, Great Britain has in the past. But again, these solutions that like create something new out of whole cloth uh, might face intense political resistance. Uh, and the best thing to do would be either to eliminate or suspend the ceiling or just say that when Congress authorizes spending, it also authorizes the financing of that spending. When you talk about the trillion dollar coin and then the Treasury giving it to the Federal Reserve and getting money in exchange, that seems very fanciful. But in fact, some governments more or less do the same thing, right? They monetize the, um, the deficit. They just print money to pay their bills. So you end up eventually like Weimar Germany or Argentina um, with hyperinflations in that case. Yeah, I think we, those, technically you're correct. I think we're extremely far away from anything like that. Uh, the government, uh, the U.S. government has the resources to pay its debt, its debt for decades. There's no reason, there's no economic reason for there to be a debt emergency or a debt crisis. Uh, the, there's only this political reason, which is politicians refusing uh, to raise the debt ceiling. So, Bill, some people listening to this might think, well, it is kind of a crazy thing, but there should be ways to rein in government spending because Congress will always sort of find um, ways to spend money to appease their constituents. Are there any good rules out there for reining in government spending, or is that something that's just kind of a incorrect way to think about things? Uh, I won't say it's incorrect, but it's it's only half of the problem. Uh, the debt deficits get created by imbalances between taxes and spending. So it's not just that spending might be considered high, it's that taxes are considered low. And uh, uh, so, I mean, it's sort of like asking which side of the scissors does, does the cutting. Uh, it's the combination of the two that creates deficits and then that, that builds, builds up the debt. But in terms, more generally, in terms of uh, safeguards, uh, there used to be a rule that uh, tax changes had to be self-financing. Uh, entitlement changes like Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid had to be self-financing. That is, if you, so for example, if you raised Medicaid spending, you had, you had to raise taxes to, to, to pay for it, for example. And discretionary spending was limited uh, to, uh, was subject to, to, to overall caps. So Congress had those caps on in the 90s and uh, to some extent in this century, uh, but they got abandoned uh, uh, at various points. The you know, Republicans wanted to cut taxes. Uh, both sides sort of uh, gave in on the spending constraints. Uh, and, you know, when we in COVID, for example, we needed we needed to to substantially boost the economy. Uh, so there are rules that people that Congress could enact, uh, but uh, you know almost almost any rule that Congress can create, Congress can eliminate as well. So it's not like these are coming down from Sinai and are immutable, but in fact, what will happen is they'll put a rule in place, and the experience is then they'll remove it. 
So it looks good for a while, but then they change it as situations change. That's right. And the more the more drastic the rule, the less likely is that it's ever going to be enforced. For example, you'll find people saying right now, well, maybe we should have a balanced budget amendment. Well, that, that's fine if you're willing to tell me how you're going to raise taxes or cut spending to get to a balanced budget. Uh, and usually people don't. They just say, well, we want this principle, but we don't want to sort of explain to voters exactly how we're going to get there. So it's like St. Augustine said, God, make me virtuous, but not yet. That is not a bad characterization of the current policy. Well, we've had some theological discussion here, Bill. Um, And I hope that the discussion that we've had about the debt ceiling is not too prescient in that we're actually going to see the kind of disruptions that you were describing. And I thank you very much for your discussion because it'll help people understand just what's at stake and what's behind all of this. Thanks for joining me, Bill, on Account Effect Chats. Thanks very much. This has been Account Effect Chats. To learn more about Account Effect and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.accountaffect.org. Account is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.